episode 431 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family, friends, or pets. I'm Stuart Baker, the host and chief provocateur for the program, and with me today are three contributors who've been on many times before, Michael Ellis, Charles Hellebut, and Brian Fleming. I'm going to jump right into the first story, which sadly is still Twitter, and uh, we can't talk about everything that's going on there, but I think a quick look at some of the legal issues that have been raised by Elon Musk's reorganization or deorganization of Twitter are worth covering. Brian, you do a lot of CFIUS work, and there is continued turmoil inside the U.S. government over whether the Musk Twitter deal, and in particular his Saudi and maybe China-affiliated investors, creates a reason for the U.S. government to do a national security review. What's the current status of that? So it's a little unclear because we have Secretary Yellen basically acknowledging on the record that it doesn't seem that there's anything to see here, anything further to investigate here, whereas... Uh, she, said, she said no basis for doing that, but she said it, I, if I remember it, on a TV program. So you wonder whether maybe she hadn't gotten fully briefed? Yeah, there'll be some staffers at the Treasury building that are getting fired as a result of that. In all seriousness, it sounds like from some of the sourcing, and, the, and this was reported in Bloomberg and picked up in a few other places last week, there is, in fact, some outstanding information requests that have gone to Twitter and to to Musk's lawyers to get some more details about the nature of any agreements or any rights that were given to these foreign investors that you mentioned, Stuart. So most notably, Saudi Arabia, China, and specifically Binance of all folks in the midst of the FTX mess, and also the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund as well. And so I think obviously the crux of the issue is whether there could be any rights that were given to you know, for data access or other things that could raise legitimate foreign and national security concerns on the part of CFIUS. And it seems that that is still an open question. That is, it it seems is actually getting looked at. Now, whether there is a, I, I do not get a sense from the reporting that there's a formal investigation or review that has been initiated, but perhaps some preliminary requests that have been lobbed into the to the Twitter camp to find out a bit more. So that's where it seems to be right now. So that's interesting. And and we've talked about this. We all thought that the only basis for a CFIUS review is if the, the these investors who were all very modest in terms of percentage, 5% or less, if I remember right, whether they had any special rights. If they have special rights, then there is at least a basis for CFIUS to look at this. And it probably makes sense to ask that question because any special rights that were conferred would have been conferred without any obligation to disclose them publicly. So if the stories that we're seeing are basically mail has been sent to Twitter and answers are being awaited, it's really pretty unsurprising. And frankly, it's pretty unsurprising that the mail has not even been opened or let alone responded to. Maybe CFIA should start tweeting it uh, or maybe DMing their, their requests for information. They fired all the people at Twitter who would have otherwise been responding to this. <laughs> so I should also add, as a final note, obviously this is an issue. This is an issue that's gotten some visibility on the Hill, not surprisingly, and doesn't seem like one that they're going to let go of anytime soon. So 
again, I think that would expect that there will be some follow through and would be further developments and updates on this story in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, but that's just because, you know, he's a mogul that uh, Dems don't like. And so, of course, Dems are going to raise this issue, or at least some of them. And that's actually bad for CFIUS that have it be presumed that there are going to be politically driven agendas in a CFIUS review. So hopefully uh, cooler heads prevail. Exactly. This seems like a case of horribly misguided priorities if they're really pursuing Twitter while, you know, leaving the TikTok. And I know we're going to talk more about TikTok later in the episode. We'll, we'll leave, leaving that on the table uh, while, while sending off information requests to Twitter. I don't doubt, Brian, as you noted, that there might be some, you know, some real grounds to look at this uh, for Cipheus. But, you know, anyone comparing the national security risk of, of some minority owners of Twitter to what we know um, in the public domain about the, the Chinese government uh, access into TikTok information really seems like they need to get their head screwed on straight to uh, figure out the priorities here. Well, I think that's. I, I, I was going to say I think that's fair, but of, of course we do have a little a little bit of a China hook here. Now we don't know what that means at this point, but there there may be some of that that, that may make its way to the fore here this, as this the weeks go on to finance. Yeah. Uh, by, well, plus Musk uh, has a lot of money tied up in Tesla, which yep. in turn has a lot of money tied up in its Shanghai operations, including a factory that probably makes something close to half of Tesla's product line. So there's a basis for doing this, but it's probably not something to get too hung up on. Okay. Well, I have held forth on Twitter, in fact, on Twitter, on Twitter, because I was struck by the fact that all of these people who'd been yowling about the importance of trust and safety and content moderation and insisting that Elon Musk was going to leave a complete vacuum on trust and safety and content moderation on Twitter were running off to Mastodon. And then I kind of looked at how does Mastodon do content moderation? And it's straight out of the 90s. It's like an AOL chat room. You have volunteers, you know, it's a decentralized network in which Lots of people can trade information from a particular server, and there's many servers that can trade information, and you kind of, it's somewhere between an email address and a, a chat room. And there are volunteers for each one of the instances, and they decide what their content moderation policies are. They decide whether there are instances they don't want to let into their system. But kind of astonishingly, the place that people most often hold up as a refuge for really unreconstructed right-wingers and Nazis and hate speech is Gab, which is on Mastodon. Now, they don't do much of the federation that would allow you to share that that data because most of the instance moderators said, we don't want to affiliate with these guys. But it, any program that relies on all that kind of reporting, saying, I don't like these guys, they're saying bad things, can we close down access to them? Or can we block a particular user? Goes through a volunteer moderator who's nothing like, you know, kind of real-time shutting down users. And yet all these people who think that Twitter is a disaster from the point of content moderation seem perfectly content to put their fate in the hands of Mastodon. I was struggling with that. And then I thought, okay, maybe that's maybe that's the future. Maybe we ought to go back to the 90s for this and have a bunch of decentralized moderation decisions that are made on the basis of 
you know, uh, the users of a particular, I would call it a content moderation pool. I mean, actually, I think Elon Musk could do this himself. He could say, you can sign up for Twitter blue or Twitter red or Twitter green or Twitter purple. And we'll let you have your own moderators and they will decide which other parts of Twitter they want to hear from or don't want to hear from. And you can all have that and let you know the marketplace of ideas sort it out. This is a, a, an interesting idea that actually was put forward by Francis Fukuyama and Roberta Katz and Doug Mellon and I in a, a proposal for middleware for content moderation. I still think it's a really interesting and worth pursuing idea. But I mostly did this just to tweak the the lefties who were rushing out of Twitter in a huff. But still, if you get a chance to read the report, uh, the moderation report of the working group on platform scale, if you search for Fukuyama, you'll find it. It's worth reading. And now, last point on Twitter, where again, it's a question of whether chaotic reorganization of Twitter is going to have massive implications. And this one I'm a little more concerned about from Musk's point of view. And Charles, you've looked at this. The argument is that Twitter entered into a, an agreement on one-stop shop to use Ireland as its GDPR regulator. And to do that, it had to agree to a whole bunch of procedural requirements, none of which it's likely to be able to fulfill while half its staff is leaving. Yeah, and so not only half of his staff is leaving, but probably all of the key people that you had on the ground in Ireland to make it actually work, or at least work on paper, either resigned or were dismissed. So um, there were reports on the CISO leaving, the chief privacy officer leaving, the chief compliance officer leaving. So basically, you are left with, with no one on the ground. And whether we like or not the uh, Irish DPC, they have raised their concern on whether or not Twitter was still able to meet the, the requirement. And they even convoke the poor new guy who was in charge, who, um, believe it or not, was uh, had to fly from Brazil to go to Ireland and step in a role of uh, chief privacy officer at Interim. If you look at his bio, it's pretty interesting. It's, so it's a university professor who has mostly spent his time in Brazil and probably needs to teach the EU privacy ways thanks to Brazilian standard or something like that. So, so I'm really curious to see how that will fly. But to your point, the, the issue for Musk is indeed that um, if they don't meet the threshold, they face the risk of having the one-stop shop falling apart, which as we all know, for them might be slightly tricky because the consequences or one of the consequences could be that all of those national data protection authorities were very keen to find Twitter and were very unkeen with the way Twitter was treated by the Irish DPC, too candidly probably, according to their eyes, uh, can start by their own initiative investigation and get really behind the back of Twitter. So you had on content moderation, you had um, uh, the EU commissioner voicing concern on saying Twitter has to comply with the EU rules, but you now have a kind of string of voices and concerns saying, yeah, they should remind that if they played with the EU rules, they might get slapped on the um, on the fingers there. So. Yes, well, not, they, the worst consequence of losing one-stop shop is that every 
single data protection authority in the European Union gets to take a shot at you on behalf of at least their citizens and to fine you 4% of your global revenue. And since there are, what, 30 members of the EU, that's 30 times four, that's 120% of annual revenue. That's a pretty tough fine to face. Yeah, no, indeed. And I think even worse there will be a lot of incentive because there are, as we know, there are a lot of regulators who, who desperately wants to find Twitter. So uh, they, hate, sure. they hated Twitter even before <laughs> Musk took, took it over. And yeah, now they absolutely, really hate yeah. it. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Indeed. Okay. Uh, all right. Sad. But watch this space. There's going to be a major culture clash between Musk's libertarian instincts and the uh, amour propre of protection authorities across Europe. All right, let's talk a little bit about the China Economic and Security Review Commission. Brian, they have another report out. I always think of them as the the most China-hostile establishment voice in Washington. And they've kind of lived up to that in this report. Yeah, I think that's fair. And for those who don't know, it's a bipartisan commission established a little over 20 years ago, people appointed by both sides of the aisle, the leaderships in Congress. And as to Stuart's point, I think each of these reports really evidences a very China hawkish attitude annually. And this one, the lead in the article that we selected from Politico last week was, you know, Chinese hackers pose a formidable threat to U.S., which if anybody was surprised to see that, then I don't know what to tell you. But the lead is that they're more stealthy, agile, and dangerous than ever. And I think a few things kind of to, to note from that, this relates, if anybody hasn't seen this or hasn't read the report, and this is in particular the chapter or the section that they're talking about is section two, which talks about China's cyber capabilities in particular. It does have a nice little refresher on sort of and reset where everything is with regard to China and what they've been up to in terms of economic espionage and trade secret theft, military capabilities, civil military fusion, which is, of course, at the core of everything we've been talking about with the semiconductor rules that have been adopted, the export controls. All of this is kind of part of the same narrative. And, you know, the takeaways and the findings of the report here are basically that China has doubled down, if you will, on their commitment to weaponizing their cyber capabilities vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and the rest of the world to make themselves kind of the preeminent cyber actor out there, if you will, for their own for their own goals and gains. And the takeaways are, are really that there just needs to be more done. U.S. needs to be doing more both to build its own offensive cyber capabilities, to build its defensive cyber capabilities, in particular with regard to critical infrastructure, and to impose more costs in on China, in particular with relation to IP theft. And I found it striking that there are, this was uh, that last point in particular, when I was still at Justice in 2014, that was when the case, the first case was brought against the uniform PLA hackers in the Western District of Pennsylvania. And that was cited by my bosses as sort of a landmark watershed event that was going to change behavior, that was going to impose costs. And there have been other cases that have come since then as well. Clearly, that has not worked. That would be my takeaway from seeing something like this and many other reports that are sort of backing up the fact that China has really elevated what it's doing in this space rather than backed off for fear of consequences. And, and the recommendations that are in the report are, they're pretty straightforward and commonsensical and I don't think are very controversial, which is to give the US better tools to impose costs, whether it be the Commerce Department imposing additional restrictions, 
OFAC imposing additional sanctions, DHS being able to take additional measures to protect critical infrastructure. These are things that in some flavor, in some capacity have been around for many, many years. And I feel like are just a retread of what we keep seeing time and again. So the question that I would throw out there, and Stuart, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on this, sort of if we're going to take this seriously, even if it is perhaps a hostile group or a hot bench, if you will, when it comes to China, what are really the measures that would matter to do anything about changing behavior on behalf of the Chinese? I had the same feeling. They don't have, as far as I can see, a lot of new ideas for making life tougher for China when it engages in cyber espionage. And most of their main recommendations were actually focused on trade sanctions. You know, should we take away MFM? Well, that's certainly a big deal. And they don't quite say that, but they're, I would say, sneaking up on taking away MFM. They're trying to lay the foundation for an end to MFM. That is, you know, the foundation of U.S.-China economic relations and certainly of China's major takeoff economically, but it's no longer something that doesn't need defending in the U.S. It probably does. I don't, you know, you might ask the question, what would China do if we took away MFN? It would cost us a lot because we've built a set of uh, trade relations in which lots of our uh, inputs come from China and come cheaper than they would come if we bought them someplace else. But I'm not sure it's unthinkable anymore. And obviously having the Economic Commission say this makes it more thinkable. The other stuff, you know, they're talking about supply chain resilience in drugs and defense. And they've got an idea that there should be an ability to demand that U.S. companies divest Chinese investments, which is a step beyond what is now the consensus view that we probably do need something on outward investment reviews. Now this is outward investment divestment. So as usual, they're well out ahead of the the consensus, but maybe only by a year or two. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the tools that Cyber Command has for responding to attacks, including cyber espionage. This is an interesting story from CyberScoop about NSPM 13, which I think, Michael, you were around for that being instituted. It was a big, big change in the Trump administration from the Biden administration's view that before Cyber Command did anything, it needed to come to the National Security Council and get permission from a lot of people, most notably the State Department. And the State Department was notorious for saying, yeah, I'm washing my hair on Thursday. Can we talk about this? I don't know. It's you know, never as good for me. It's never good for you. And so very little got done in the Obama administration by Cyber Command. All of those restraints or most of them were taken off in the Trump administration. And now the Biden administration has spent two years trying to decide how many of them should be put back on. And the answer is... Not very many, it appears. And, you know, I think this is the segue from Brian's remarks on the U.S.-China Economic Commission as well, when they're reiterating a lot of the traditional tools to stop cyber espionage that have not really proven effective over the last several years. The one tool that, that hasn't been part of, of our toolbox, hasn't been in the arsenal, has been offensive cyber operations. So, you know, Stuart, to the, the, these press reports, they indicate that President Biden is soon going to amend NSPM 13. And you summed it up well that you know, that's a directive that President Trump signed that enabled the U.S. to launch offensive cyber operations coming after really years of bureaucratic deadlock in the Obama administration. And Brian has some scars from, from those discussions as well. But 
you know, it wasn't just it wasn't just one meeting of the State Department or, or others, you know, expressing concerns and needing to continue to study an issue. It was layer after layer of these meetings, right? Uh, all the way up, all the way up the chain for any offensive cyber operation before it could be launched. And yeah. the result is when there's no demand signal from the policymakers to, to pursue a particular option like offensive cyber operations, then the operating agencies here, mostly Cyber Command, they just don't build the capabilities, right? If they if they get the sense that they're never going to be able to use it because they'll never get the approvals, you don't invest your scarce time, energy, and budget resources in building out that that capability. So, look, NSPM 13 and any amendments to it will be classified documents, but according to these press reports, the amendments that are soon headed to President Biden's desk will you know, require DOD to share some more granular details about their operations with the White House before the operations carried out. That's probably a good thing, right? Um, the commander-in-chief needs to know what exactly the armed forces are going to do before they go out and do it. it. looks like the State Department will get some chance to document its concerns in advance. There wasn't a lot of detail in the press reports about what that means, but it's clear that it won't be a veto or an ability to, to put a hold on an operation for any period of time. So it appears it's really the the core principles of the Trump administration's approach with some refinement around the edges, and that refinement may even be a helpful thing. Um, So it will be interesting to see now if with these refinements that there is a more robust offensive cyber operations tool available to policymakers. I think in the the Russia-Ukraine context, we've seen some examples of cybercom's offensive operations doing a lot of good work, and there's undoubtedly a lot more they can do on the China cyber espionage front as well. So I, the thing that I would found interesting is there was a debate years ago, again, in the Obama administration, that apparently continues to be part of this discussion, which is that Cyber Command can't just go in and do an operation in Iran, let's say, from the United States, because Iran is looking for packets that come from the United States, watching them more closely. So you have to kind of sneak around and move through three or four different layers of jurisdiction and then pop out and conduct your operation. And the State Department's view was, if you spent any time in a server that was located in Germany or France or Morocco, they needed to go talk to the Moroccan government and make sure they were okay with that, which is you know, a way of saying you, you can never do it. And it appears that Cyber Command has just kind of won that fight and that there is no longer uh, at least a State Department role in trying to get permission. I was surprised. I did not know that that had been resolved. Uh, and maybe it hasn't. Uh, yeah, uh, if you if you read the tea leaves, there's a speech that Paul Nye, the former general counsel of DOD, gave in 2020, where he talks about this issue. And if you read that speech carefully, it points to the resolution. Of, uh, okay. of that particular international uh, argument from the State Department. And really, it's a resolution that I think aligns with, with that of our allies as well, that you know, the UK has long been of the view that, that that merely transitory passage through the networks of another of a third country without causing any harm, without using force in the international law context, so that does not amount to a violation of sovereignty. So there has been an international law argument uh, along those lines for quite some time that our allies have embraced. And this, I think, is an instance of the US catching up to that view. Yes. Okay. So that, that this is why it's sometimes useful to have these international law discussions. It was buried in the context of what constitutes a violation of sovereignty. And you're right that not everybody has given up on it. But I think maybe even France, which used to be pretty hard over on this, is now uh, has now wobbled away from it. The Germans, I don't know, but you know, you have to have a military capability before people really take take seriously your. Views well, that's right. I mean, this 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 is created by state practice, right? If you don't have the yeah. capability, you don't get to engage in state practice. You don't get to help set the rule. 
Um, you know, you can make all the comments you want at the conference in The Hague, but at the end of the day, it's state practice that's going to determine the rule here. So I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, hopefully that the United States is out, you know, leading in this respect and is, is, is engaging in the state practice that furthers the rule that we want to see, as opposed to waiting for decades for a rule to emerge. All right. So there's a different kind of state practice. Uh, 40 states have settled with Google, uh, which is going to pay them almost $400 million to settle a privacy complaint that they'd all brought against them. It was a little like shooting a fish in a barrel or several fish in a barrel. Google had told people, you can turn off location history and then we won't put any of your location in our location history bucket. And it would have been reasonable to assume that that meant that Google wasn't collecting your location. But since Google Maps still worked after you turned off location history, it was kind of hard to see why people would have thought that 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 was the case. And if you really poked around, you could see that they were only turning it off in certain circumstances and not for other apps. But it was misleading enough that it would be hard for Google to really argue that it hadn't misled people about their privacy. That's a pretty stiff fine to pay for this statement, considering that no one, I don't think I can think of anybody who would actually want to have location turned off and still use their phone for any of the purposes, including Google Maps and directions and said recommendations and restaurant near me, any of that would be unusable if you didn't have location turned on. So nobody was actually, I'm guessing, induced to, to leave location on by this language because you'd be foolish to leave location to turn location off so i but 392 million tells you just how unpopular silicon valley is politically on both sides of the aisle okay michael the cisa put out a report on an iranian hack that i have to say is kind of embarrassing for the agency that got hacked. Yeah, that's right. The, the log, Log4j vulnerabilities claim another victim, and this time it's the Merit Systems Protection Board. And you're right, Stuart, that it's a little embarrassing because uh, CISA had put out the warning to agencies last December, telling them about this vulnerability, telling them what they needed to do to, to patch it, in fact, ordering them to patch it. And lo and behold, several months later, in February of 2022, you know, Iranian hackers associated with the Nemesis Kitten you know, threat actor group managed to exploit it and got into the MSPB's networks and started moving laterally inside of it. I, I thought it was particularly interesting that what were the Iranian hackers looking to do with the Merit Systems Protection Board? You know, may, maybe they're really interested in whistleblower complaints by federal civil servants, but they also installed uh, cryptocurrency mining software. So that suggests that, that maybe maybe the MSTB wasn't really targeted for any sensitive information that they have. I'm sure there's something useful the Iranians could get there, but maybe not the primary concern. It might have just been a vulnerability, a, a target of opportunity yeah. that they could exploit and make a couple bucks like uh, like any other criminal gang. I think that's what is adding insult to injury. Not only are you super easy to hack, you're not worth exploiting once we've hacked you. We're just going to start install a crypto miner uh, and see if we can get, especially, you know, with Bitcoin where it is. I mean, I, it, it, they'd have to run it for years to make a buck. Well, and so, this, this, this was back in February. It was worth a little more okay. then. But, All right. uh, but, but the, the, the point is taken. And yeah, and the MSPB didn't find out about this themselves either. They found out about it. You know, DHS's Einstein software detected the intrusion several months later. So, you know, slow, slow progress in improving the federal government's own cyber defenses. And you'd like to see a little bit better work there before they move on to regulating the private sector. 
Okay, and here's a story where I don't say anything rude about Apple, maybe, um, because they're about to start using, well, in, in a, a year and a half, U.S.-made chips in Apple products. Brian, what's the story there? Yeah, this is kind of a companion to the discussion we just had about the U.S.-China uh, commission report in some ways, not entirely surprising, which is that Tim Cook acknowledged, and this was reported in Bloomberg and popped up in a few other places last week, that Apple's going to be buying chips from an Arizona-based plant starting in 2024. And it's, it, although not sort of stated explicitly, it's widely understood that that's the TSMC plant that's under construction there in Arizona, TSMC, of course, is the provider of Apple's chips and, you know, out of their Taiwan facility. And so I think this speaks to a couple of different interesting issues. One is, of course, the vulnerability of Taiwan. And and I think the idea that Apple and other big consumers of chips coming out of Taiwan have recognized that they might need to be diversifying and making contingency plans in terms of sourcing of chips from the U.S. And Tim Cook also acknowledged in the same article sourcing from European suppliers as well, although those weren't specified. So that's number one. Obviously, this goes kind of hand in hand with the recent export controls on China and the fact that China is just not going to be a viable long-term solution for U.S. You know, chip consumers, certainly, I think, at this point. And so, again, gets at that issue. Interesting thing here, I think, and obviously, we have the CHIPS Act that was just passed this week, or this year, rather. And so, this is kind of foreshadowing what we're going to start to be seeing and what policymakers, I think, are expecting to be seeing in the years to come here in the U.S., which is revitalizing the sort of indigenous U.S. chip making capabilities. And, and the TSMC facility certainly is expected to be state-of-the-art and be able to produce down to, I think, three nanometers, which is essentially where the state-of-the-art is now. What I'm seeing um, is five. I, I, I think it's going to be a generation behind TSMC's best stuff. At least initially, I think is the case. But yeah, that's right. And but I think the idea that you know there will we were we are sort of I think this is the tip of the iceberg, and perhaps seeing more of this right. in the U.S. is I think where this is this is the trend. And obviously, Apple is in some ways a bellwether and a bit of an outlier with their unique kind of market power and capitalization to be able to perhaps take a bit of the economic hit that this w could cause in the short term. But still, I think this is in some ways, a, an important signal that we now, the sort of reshoring or the, you know, trend is perhaps starting to, we're starting to see some real world examples of how that's going to play out and what that's going to look like. And it'll be fascinating to see sort of as more, more companies in the U.S. perhaps get on board with this and look for other alternatives, what that's going to look like and how quickly that could be adopted and implemented, frankly. Okay. Yep. I agree. Three or four quick stories that I wanted to cover. FTX, the uh, the cryptocurrency uh, exchange has been taken over. There's a new CEO appointed and his first job was to say, where do things stand? And uh, this is John Ray, who actually did uh, the Enron bankruptcy, uh, issued a very quick report that said, basically, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. Here. That's, you know, telling it like it is. So we're going to hear more and more bad news out of FTX. It really looks as though it was a disaster from beginning to end once you got inside the, uh, the corporate walls. Everybody who's been paying attention has noticed that there have been a lot of layoffs in Silicon Valley. Google got rid of, I said it was getting rid of 10,000 poor performers. Twitter lost half its workforce. Amazon is laying off 10,000 employees. Netflix and Meta, Spotify all have announced layoffs. I think it's 
it's worth noting that apart from Twitter, these are pretty minor corrections. Amazon hired something like 400,000 people in the last year, and they've decided that 10,000 of them are more than they need. That's a correction, not a disaster. Only Twitter has really lost a very substantial percentage of its employees. But it's enough for everybody in Silicon Valley to say, well, gee, I guess I don't have this job for life, and maybe I should stop complaining about my, my management in public. Well, Stuart, you know who you know who's still hiring out in the papers this morning? TikTok. Although, <laughs> yes, strangely, okay. most of those jobs they're hiring for are not based in the U.S. <laughs> yes, there might be other consequences to complaining about your employer there. Okay, Charles, a couple of stories, additional data protection stories. We now. Uh, you know, last week we covered what I call the Euro Appeasement Court rules, which were meant to get an adequacy determination out of Brussels. And now Brussels is telling us that the one should be coming soon. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, last week was uh, IAPP, uh, Brussels Congress, so it was worth not so much for the content, but for all of the gossip you were getting in the corridors there. Yep. And one of the gossip uh, was on some timing on the upcoming adequacy for the revised privacy shield. We are told that the EU Commission is working hard and even hoping to have something ready in a draft format by end of the year as kind of holiday present for everyone. So let's see if they deliver on that. Um, I'll just quickly point out as well that we had a famous, uh, let's say, event at IAPP with Max Schrems himself engaging in a funny discussion with Eduardo Oustaran on the chance that there will be a Schrems tree. And he was very educational on how uh, he thinks a Shrems 3 will arrive, will uh, is he is exist. he really looking for a Shrems three, or is he just yeah, sick but, of doing this? <laughs> no, exactly. And that that's the most, frankly, that's the probably the most important piece is that there will be a Shrems three, uh, and he thinks he's, he's he's needed to devote his life to getting a Shrems three, four, five, six, seven, ten. But he admitted himself that he was bored of doing it, and that he's basically doing it simply because otherwise there will be someone else doing it. So so, so probably he still needs to have his name on on court justice yeah. decision there but that, that's basically where we will end up so yeah that's that, that's fascinating and one other thing meta facebook announced that it was going to sue the european data protection board to try to overturn a 400 million dollar fine i don't know why 400 million dollars is such a popular number but it was about it was a little over 400 million was and it was in euros but they got the data protection board basically told ireland to impose that fine on meta and meta is saying it's a violation of European law. Yeah, so and that's a pretty interesting one. So it was announced today and it's the first of its kind. So it's uh, we don't want to get into the arcane of uh, EU politics and, and way it works. But Meta, as you know, has been struggling a lot with the Irish DPC and uh, with Max Schrems, frankly, over the years. And here they got a bad decision from the EDPB was kind of aggravating the fines that they were supposed to get for some child vulnerabilities or protection in the Instagram decision. And they have announced that they will indeed go after the EDPB decision in front of the EU court. So it's the first of its kind. We'll see where it lands, but it's it was worth noting indeed. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's worth talking a little bit about, now that we've talked about Cyber Command, the Aussies are 
just up in arms about ransomware in a way that even this country wasn't after we were freezing in the dark because of attacks on our pipelines. Their biggest, their second biggest telecom company, one of their biggest banks hacked and at least in the case of Medibank, their records, they said, well, we're not going to pay because the hack of Optus had produced so much bad publicity for Optus that Medibank said, well, we're just not going to pay. We're going to defy the, the ransomware gang. And the gang, which is Revil, I believe, has started releasing all kinds of really embarrassing information on a third of the country, including a list of everybody who got an abortion, or at least that's what appears to be a spreadsheet of abortion portions and a variety of other really embarrassing medical devices or conditions. And so Australia's minister has said, gone on TV and said, we're going to hack the hackers. We're not going to lie down. We are going to chase you to the ends of the earth. You will pay and pay. Very aggressive, typically Australian response to uh, this kind of tactic. I have to say, I, it, it's very nice to hear you know, we've been through this too, and we actually unleashed the hounds earlier. I, the, you know, she is creating a joint group with about 150 people, some half of them cops and half of them cyber command types to go after ransomware artists, maybe even before they strike. And cyber command had one really effective attack on actually, I think it was Revil. They actually took over their infrastructure and scared the crap out of everybody. And those guys all went underground for a while, but you know, obviously they're back. And I kind of wonder whether the Australian minister is overselling what can be done, even if you let loose the hounds, the hounds may not actually end up doing more than taking a nip out of the seat of the pants of the bad guys. So that's, that's my skeptical take on Australia's release the hounds speech, much as I like it. You've got to find some place they can actually bite, and I'm not sure we've yeah. found it. Well, even even starting off with a nip is better than nothing. I yes. Guess the question is uh, just, you know, how much capability the Australians are really going to be able to bring to bear here. I'm sure it's a little bit, but as you noted, they're, they're, they're an order of magnitude smaller than the U.S. when it comes to these kinds of things. So it'll be a, a limited ability to really affect circumstances. Yeah, but both the, the Aussies and the Brits are pound for pound probably more effective than our guys. We just have, you know, a lot more pounds. And so I, I would not be surprised to see them do something clever, but, you know, they, they're not going to actually arrest these guys. They're not going to do anything other than it inconvenience them in a significant way or an insignificant way. And uh, once you've done that once or twice and taken a victory lap and they come back, it's not a very satisfying thing to continue. So I think we're still looking for tools that will stop ransomware. Okay, that's it for episode 431. Thank you to Michael, to Charles, to Brian. If you've got questions or comments, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating. Many thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 431 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. <laughs>